we're going to go into the third part of our communion series. Um, it's really been an amazing time. The last two weeks, it's been like, it's almost like when you switch over from like just sitting and listening to something to actually doing something together in response as a community. And so it's been, it's one way in which God's truth goes deeper into our hearts, not just by listening to something, but also by doing something together, by partaking in something together. So the first week when we um, talked about communion, it was communion as remembrance. So whenever we partake in communion, we do so thinking about what Jesus has already done on our behalf. The fact that he was broken, he poured out his blood, that we who are sinners, we who are dead in our transgressions, we who were without hope are now able to be reconciled to the Father. So this is Jesus bridging the gap between God and man. Then the second week we had Pastor JP, he walked what it means as reconciliation, bridging the gap between God and not just me, but us. What it means to partake in communion together as one body. It means that we're able to share and confess our sins with one another. We're able to pray for one another. We encourage one another. We walk this walk together. And so today is the third installment of um, this sermon series. We're going to go back to the same passage of scripture that we read a couple of weeks ago. It's from Matthew 26, verse 17, starting verse 17. And it reads, on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, go into the city to a certain man. And that's very specific, right? To a certain man and tell him the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely not I, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely not I, rabbi. Jesus answered, yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. Amen. So today's third installment, part three of the series is going to be dealing with Jesus's return. Now, as I was preparing for this message, I prayed a lot, for sure, because I know one thing for certain, and this is that unless we want it just to be 
kind of an intellectual understanding of like, oh, that's so cool. Like the communion kind of ties in with the return of Christ. It's, unless we just want it to be something in, that we can intellectually grasp. And if we actually want God to do something deep within us to begin to long for his return, it really has to be the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit working in our midst today. Like it, I cannot convince you through human words to long for Jesus' return. Like nothing I say, no kind of compelling argument is going to get you to that place. It has to be the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And I know this for a fact because that's what happened to me. For so many years that I had been a Christian, I always somehow thought that talking about Jesus' return was like a bonus, like an afterthought, like here's the real gospel. And oh, yeah, he's returning, by the way. You know, it's kind of like an afterthought. That's what I thought for a long, long time. I felt like it had no practical applications in the way that I live my life. That's the first thing. Second is, it's going to be mysterious anyway. So why should I really study this? Because I'm not really going to reach a conclusion, right? You know, and so it's, it felt like it was like a pursuit in vain. Third was like, well, okay, okay, maybe it is something important. But it's not important for the whole body of Christ. Like, there's certain churches or certain movements that kind of major in this area. And we're just not one of them, you know? Like, let them handle that. Let them really be about the return of Christ. But, you know, like, that's their thing, you know? Like, I have my thing, you got your thing, and we're cool, right? And so I thought that it didn't apply to me. And lastly, I had this preconceived notion of what the gospel was. And I felt like, okay, the gospel, if you were to talk to anybody about the gospel, you just say, okay, you're a sinner, really bad, you know, really, really bad. No matter how good you try to be, there's no way you can save yourself. And so God had to come down. God himself had to die on the cross for your sins. He was dead for three days and he rose up from the grave and now you're saved. And so when you die, now you're going to go to heaven if you believe in him. And I thought that that was the whole, uh, I, I believe that that was a whole message of the gospel. But I didn't realize that part of the gospel message, it has everything to do with the return of Christ. If you don't talk about the return of Christ, you've given an incomplete gospel. The gospel is incomplete without talking about Jesus' return. And to be frank, you know, I had all these different reasons why I didn't want to care about it or like, Know, someday, like if God goes out of his way to really reveal a whole lot about it, then maybe I'll care about it. But in the meantime, I'm really not going to seek it out. I'm not really going to pray into it. I'm not going to look up teachings. Like I really have nothing to do with that. I was very comfortable in that. If I was very honest, it's because I didn't want to be a, one of those weird Christians. Like if I'm really honest, I was like, oh, I just don't want to be that. And you know, like, I'm just going to give, you know, the, the, the gospel and theology and this and that. And, you know, kind of mention, oh, yeah, by the way, he's going to return, you know. But I'm not going to be like the, the, the weird Christian, you know, like the weird Christian who's always talking about the end is coming. And, like, you better be ready to face the wrath of, you know, like, I just didn't want to be a weird Christian. That's just, that was my honest, you know, my honest truth. I didn't want to be a weird Christian. I want to be a respectable one. I want to be a likable one. You know, I don't want to get in people's faces, you know, like as long as it's something that happened in the past and it's historical, then it's not as confrontational. But as soon as you begin to talk about the return of Christ, it has 
very marked, very specific implications about how you ought to live your life now. And so it's very confrontational to talk about the return of Christ. And it also makes you sound a little crazy, right? Like a lot of other stuff you can talk about, like, well, this historical facts and there's historians that, you know, will verify that this was true. And, you know, the, 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 you know, the tomb of Jesus was never found. And when it was found, like there's, there's not body body there. And, you know, like you can talk about history and you don't sound like a weirdo, right? But you talk about the future, things that you cannot verify right now, other than just through scripture, you start sounding a little kooky, right? And so I just didn't want to be that Christian. So I have to, like, lay it bare before you guys. I was ashamed of the return of Christ. I was ashamed of the gospel, really. I was comfortable with part of it, not all of it. So, like, the part that I didn't feel comfortable with, I just kind of omitted from my presentation of the gospel. And so I was ashamed of the gospel. So we're going to talk about the return of Christ and we're going to take a moment to pray before I actually go into the scripture. And this is what I feel like God is going to do today, okay? For some of you guys, it's going to like, the light bulb is going to go off. I'm not off, on, right? The light bulb is going to go on. Please don't turn off the light bulb, <laughs> right? It's going to turn on. And it's going to be like, ah, okay, I see now how it ties with the gospel. I see now how this has implications for my life right now. I see how communion has everything to do with it. Okay, I I connect the dots now. And then for some of you, and this is perfectly normal, it's just going to plant a seed. It's going to plant a seed. Today, I'm just going to plant a seed. You're going to hear it. You're going to be like, okay, that's interesting. Let's move on to more important things, you know? And it's going to, but it's going to plant a seed. And that's my desire that something in you will be like, huh, okay, there's something there. Maybe, you know, the fourth time, the 10th time, the 20th time that you hear a message on the return of Christ, then things are going to, the gears are going to start turning. And that's perfectly okay. And I know this because I was a Christian for so long before those connections started to um, kind of be made in my mind. So we're going to take a moment to pray, and all that we're going to pray is that we would be good soil, that our hearts would be good soil, that whatever is true, whatever is God's word, God's promise, it's going to, it's going to take root in our hearts, and that we don't need to force anything, but it's going to be the Holy Spirit that allows things to grow inside of us. So let's take a moment just to Pray for our hearts just for for 20 seconds. 20 seconds, just pray for your own heart. And I'm going to also pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Where it is the Holy Spirit's role, the Holy Spirit's job to illuminate scripture in our hearts, allow it to take root for us to grow in godliness, grow in Christ-likeness, grow in understanding. And I pray, Father, that through today's word, we would just see you better. We would know you better. We would love you better. 
and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we pray, God, that you would begin to awaken a cry in us, a cry that is already there, that is buried deep within us. Lord God, a cry that longs for the return of Christ. I pray, Father, that you would do it in your sovereignty, in your will, and through your power. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I shared a little bit about my story and my own journey in cultivating a desire for Jesus' return. And I can tell you for a fact that it took more than just good teaching. So teaching needed to be there. The foundations needed to be set. The scripture I needed to know and see for myself. But somewhere along the way, the Holy Spirit did something supernatural. And I cannot explain it to you because I don't know how it happened. It is something that, you know, the the phrase like, it's caught, not taught. It almost like bypassed my brain in some aspects, in some ways. I just felt like this happened within the, the prayer room. And, you know, we pray for, you know, the return of Christ. We worship for the return of Christ. We, we do all these different things. And for a long time, it was like in faith. I would just do it in faith. Like, well, it's true. Well, it's scripture. Well, it's the gospel. So I guess I should sing about these things. But then at a certain point, I don't know what the Holy Spirit did, but I found myself in these prayer watches, like weeping for the return of Christ. And I knew that it wasn't me trying to do that because like there's not enough information here to make me do that and there wasn't something in my heart where I was like I'm going to try to get really emotional and you know like weep for the return of Christ I did I wasn't even trying but it was something that the Holy Spirit was doing in me despite me almost and that's what I'm praying that God will begin to birth in us today So when we partake in communion, just as a recap of what we did for the previous weeks, the first thing that we talked about was communion in remembrance. So we partake in communion in remembrance. Second was we partake in communion in reconciliation, reconciliation to one another. And so what we're going to talk about today is partaking in communion in anticipation for Jesus' return. Once these things begin to click in your your mind and in your heart, You begin to see it everywhere in scripture. Let me give you just one example. This is from Jesus's um, kind of priestly prayer, high priestly prayer that we can see in John chapter 17. And he says a lot of different things, but I'm just going to highlight a few different things. So if we were to look at communion in remembrance, what Jesus has already done, he says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Glorify being, meaning lifted up. So when Jesus is talking about, you know, glorify your son, it's not just like holla, you know? It's not that. It's not just like lip service. He's talking about being lifted up as a son of God upon a cross, and God is going to glorify himself through that in order to give eternal life to those that have been given to him. If we were to look at communion in reconciliation, he goes on a few verses later, and he says, Holy Father, protect them, his disciples, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. 
So they, the disciples, may be one as we. Who's we? Jesus and the Father, right? He's, he's talking to the Father. As we are one. I just want you to kind of let that sink in just for a little bit, right? Like how one is the Son and the Father? Like really one, right? Like, like really, really one. You can't talk about the Son without talking about the Father. They've been in perfect communion perfect fellowship, unbroken, you know, fellowship since before time began. So it's perfect, like the father saying, I love you, son. I love you, son. I love you, son. The son saying, I love you, father. I love you, father. I love you, father, for all of eternity, right? That's how one they are. And so when Jesus is saying, I want them to be one as you and I are one. He's asking for something supernatural. Not just like, hey, we get along. Yeah. Like, they're okay. They're a little bit weird at times, but, you know, it's more than just affinity. It's more than just, hey, we gather together in the same room once a week. Or like, hey, I go to house church once a week. It's more than that. It's one in heart, one in purpose, one in destiny, one in passion. There's, there's a oneness that is far beyond just like, hey, we like each other. Or like, hey, we're, we, we have great chemistry together. Or like, hey, we go to the same church. It's a lot more than just that. So this is talking about communion and reconciliation. And then a few verses later, we see communion in anticipation. So talking about Jesus' return, this is what Jesus prays. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Again, I, I want us to let this sink in as well because we tend, to, we tend to gloss over this. We kind of like just pass by this. But Jesus is saying this was the entire purpose behind a saving work. This is the entire why behind the how, Right? The how is like Jesus died for our sins. He rose again from the grave. And everyone who believes in him will now have eternal life. So when this life, when we pass away from this life, we are going to be with Jesus forever, right? For Jesus, it's, it's like we are going to be together. Like that's what he's after. That's entire obsession. That is what drove him to the cross, to the grave, and through his resurrection. It was this one thought that they're going to be with me where I am. That's what he's after. He's not after, you know, all the other things that we tend to classify as Christianity. Like, hey, we, we give him a certain amount of our money. Like, oh, hey, we acknowledge him or we read his book or we gather together with his people. It's more than just that. What is driving this entire narrative is his obsession, his desire, his longing, his aching to be for us to be with him. And he is longing and aching for that day it's not just a casual thought it's not just like hey it'll come when it comes like oh hey like someday we'll be together he's like i can't wait for us to be together i am counting down the days for us to be together i i cannot wait i'm sitting at the edge of my seat i am almost hyperventilating like i just can't wait for us to be together And that is the driving force behind the entire gospel message. Jesus 
longs to be with us. He longs to be with us. Let me ask you a question. Do we long to be with Jesus? If we're frank, why not? You know, like we're like, someday it'll happen. But like, dude, take your time, you know? Like, I got things to do. My schedule's really busy, you know? Hopefully someday I want to get married. I want to have children. I want grandchildren. And, you know, like maybe then, once I've enjoyed the fullness of this life, then maybe you can come, you know? Until then, like, no rush. You know, it's not like, come quickly, Lord. It's like, take your time, Lord. Come eventually, you know? But, uh, you know, like, no rush. And that is, that is often our posture. Um, let me pose this example to you. Has anybody here ever been in a long-distance relationship? There's, yeah, some faces are like, oh, man, yes. Yes, it was. Was it enjoyable? No, it's painful, right? Especially if you're, like, in different states or different countries or, or whatnot, and you have to, like, you know, orchestrate, like, okay, when, when can we call one another? When can we, you know, are we ever going to be in the same city on the same day? Like, it is really, really, yeah, James, you're, like, nodding, like, big time, right? It is, like, right, like, you can't wait to see them. You know, you, like, you're, you've marked it in your calendar. You set, you know, like, a countdown on your phone. Like, you just can't wait to be together again. You can't wait. It's, like, everything is geared towards that. And you're not there, like, hey, if we have to push it back a few days, that's okay, you know? Like, oh, if we have to, you know, like, wait for another couple months, you know, like, no biggie. No, you're like, no, no, we cannot delay this thing. We have to see one another. It's that kind of longing, that kind of aching that we also ought to have for Jesus. But often, for us, it's like, you know, like, life is good. You know, life is okay. Like, it's got its ups and downs. But, you know, like, if you delay a little longer, it's fine. You know, like, I'm comfortable. I'm just chilling here. Just let me know when you're about ready to come. And, you know, I'll get excited then. But we don't want to be living in anticipation. We don't want to be living in longing. This is often how we feel about Jesus. But this is definitely not how Jesus feels about us. Jesus cannot wait for the day in which we actually partake communion with him once again in the flesh. So we see communion and remembrance, communion and reconciliation and anticipation. And the first week when we were going through the sermon series, we went through like the, the actual moment when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, and it was actually a Passover meal. It happened in a Passover meal. It was a celebration of Passover. It was remembering the literal promise that God had made to Israel in the book of Exodus, before the ten, pl- ten plagues, before the splitting of the sea, before the wandering of the desert, before the conquest of the promised land, when they were still in bondage. And the literal promise that they actually recall, and they actually still do this to this day, Jewish people, they still do. So when they are partaking in Passover, Jews still do this, by the way. So they're partaking in communion, I mean, in and, and Passover together. They're celebrating the Passover. They go through liturgy. So they sit down and read through certain passages from the Old Testament. And this is one of the passages that they read through. Exodus 6, verses 6 um, through 8. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. 
Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I soar with uplifting hand and give, um, to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I am the Lord. So this is actual passage that they read together, and these are the four promises that they highlight and they bring out from this passage. The first is, I will bring you out. So this is God's promise to the Israelites. It means that he's actually going to physically remove them from Egypt, right? And so even Jews, even all, all the way to today, when they think about this, they think about, okay, what he's done in the past, but also what he's going to do in the future for us. It means that the power that was over you, the authority that was over you, no longer has a hold on you. I will remove the slave masters from over you. That is what God is saying. In the case of Israel, God had to physically remove them from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And this is a promise that they hold on to, and they hold on to fast. The second is, I will free you. Now, it sounds really familiar. Like, it sounds just like a repetition or like a, a rephrasing of the same thing. But it's actually profoundly different, as it was in the case with the Israelites. And it's also often the case in us. God can bring us out of bondage, but we still carry the identity of a slave. We still walk around like slaves, even though Egypt is long gone, right? It means that we can leave it, Egypt but still carry Egypt with us. God has to do something substantial in us to deliver us from the Egypt we carry with us. And many of us have experienced this even in our own spiritual walk. You know, the moment that you get saved, you feel like, okay, everything in my life is going to change like this moment, right? And then, like, you realize you wake up the next day and like, okay, a lot has changed but not everything. You know, I still struggle with sin. Like, how come, like, I don't wake up out of bed, like, with praises on my lips and, like, praying to the Lord and fasting and praying? Like, it does, just doesn't happen overnight in that way. And you're like, oh, I thought it was supposed to be like the magic bullet, right? I thought everything was going to have to change. But God has to do substantial inner work in us to bring us from out of slavery. Even though we are technically no longer a slave, we still believe that we are. And this is something that we experience in, on a daily basis. Third is, I will redeem you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So redemption, it, we have to kind of take off our Christian hat for a moment to look at the word redemption. Redeem, it, it's actually a financial term. Like you redeem a coupon. Like you redeem, you know, like you redeem a mortgage, right? It's actually a financial term. It's actually a purchase to pay off, to reclaim. That's what it actually means. So it was, this was promised about uh, 1,600 years before Jesus was actually born. And it isn't, um, it, it isn't just like, oh, I, I'm just going to do this kind of ambiguous, abstract, you know, spiritual thing here. It's actually, I'm going to purchase you as a people. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to pay you off. I'm going to pay for you. That's what he's actually saying, with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And we know that, you know, this is literally how he did it for Egypt, right? Moses kind of stretched out the staff over the sea and the sea parted. And that is exactly how they left Egypt. But isn't it crazy how you just look at this verse on this side of the cross and you think about how did Jesus do that for me? It is also with his arms outstretched upon a cross. And that is how he redeemed it. He redeemed us, and it's also through mighty acts of judgment, not that was given over Egypt, 
but it was absorbed by Jesus himself. Jesus Christ absorbed the full wrath of God that was owed to us. It, it wasn't like we got off scot-free. We got off free, but it was costly for someone else. And so all that wrath that was due to us, that was owed to us, should have been poured out upon us. It was actually absorbed by this one man, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. So the same, the, it's the wrath of God that was poured out upon his son. And this is the punishment was that, that was due to us. That owed by us was redeemed, purchased by Christ on the cross. And finally, this is the fourth. Did I move ahead already? Might be. Okay, I will take you as my own. I will take you as my own. Finally, God will take us, the broken, the sinful, the unclean, the orphan, and make us his own, and he will be our God. And to, com to commemorate these four different promises, the Jews would celebrate, actually, with a liturgy that included four cups of wine, right? Each of them to commemorate these promises. And so these are the four promises. I will bring you out. I will free you. I'll redeem you. I'll take you as my own. What they would call each cup was, the first is the cup of sanctification. The second is cup of deliverance. The third is the cup of redemption. And finally, it is the cup of praise. So they would actually do a, an entire liturgy, an entire kind of service around these four cups. They would say different words and recall different promises, read different scripture, and they would partake of the first. Do the same thing again, partake of the second. Do the same thing again, partake of the third. And so many scholars, actually, when they look at the, the Passover, the Last Supper passage in the New Testament, most of them will agree that what Jesus was referring to when he's saying, like, one, I will not partake of this cup again until I partake it with you in my Father's kingdom. He's talking about the fourth. So he stopped at the fourth, and he said, this last cup I'm reserving for the day when I will make them my own when we will actually partake in this cup together. This final promise. This final promise. So this is the final scene of the journey, this last cup, the culmination of the son's desire for a pure and spotless bride in the global church. The culmination of the father's desire to give his son his inheritance on the earth. And so if we were to go back to the scripture that they take this from, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you from under the yoke of the Egyptians. This particular last promise, it sounds really familiar. And I'll, I'll tell you where you've read it probably. It is from the book of Revelation as well. That happens, you know, 1700, 1700 years after that was written. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from, uh, from out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So it's talking about this. This is the ultimate culmination of Jesus' redeeming work. It wasn't just for us to make it to heaven someday or like not have to face judgment. That's definitely part of it. 
But the ultimate goal for Jesus is there's going to be a day when we're together again, when I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. We're going to be reunited once again. There won't be any more longing, no more aching, no more pain. There's going to be that day. Can I propose to you that this is the ache of God's heart? This is what he's waiting for. This is what he's longing for. The desire of his desires. This is his obsession. This is what he is after. He longs for that day. He cannot wait for that day. He's counting down the minutes until we're together again. So two weeks ago, when we talked about the sacrifice of a perfect and spotless lamb to cover the sins of man, we looked through a different a, a timeline, right? We said at the very beginning, we see in the book of Genesis how after Adam and Eve, they fell, the only thing that could cover for their sins, it wasn't the fig leaves that they used to cover themselves. God actually had to slay an animal. And it was that animal, the skin of that animal that was able to cover for their nakedness. It was one lamb for one person. In the book of Exodus, when we see God taking the Israelites out of Egypt, and we see God instituting the Passover, he says, one lamb, one unblemished lamb, smear his blood on your doorpost. So one lamb would cover one household. Then a few books later, we see in the book of Leviticus how in the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would kind of sprinkle the blood of a lamb And that sacrifice, that one animal, would be enough to atone for the sins of an entire nation. But then when we see, we fast forward to the New Testament, we see that in Jesus, Jesus is the lamb that was slain for the world. His blood is sufficient to cover for the sins of the entire world. This is another way for us to look at it in terms of the gospel. The first is salvation promised. Then all throughout the Old Testament, it is salvation foreshadowed. Through every act of deliverance, through every battle, through every prophet, through every act of rescue, we see a foreshadowing of an ultimate sacrifice and an ultimate salvation that is to come. And then in Jesus, we see salvation secured. What Jesus did at his first coming, it secured it, it sealed the deal, it paid the price. If we were to zoom out, however, there's something that we're missing in this timeline, and that is salvation consummated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this happens at the end of time. This is what all of history is rushing toward. Salvation consummated. Can I propose to you that our understanding of the gospel is incomplete if we just stop at the cross and the resurrection? So until Jesus' return, we live in attention of what God has done and what he is doing, and what he will do, because we live in, in like, already and not yet, right? The kingdom that has come, but is also coming, right? This is where it's all headed, though. The marriage supper of the Lamb. This is where the entire stream of history is headed toward, where the desires of God converge with the desires of man, where the separation and the rift that started in the Garden of Eden is finally and permanently bridged, where we don't just see dimly as in a mirror, We actually behold perfection with unveiled faces. It's the personification of everything that is good, excellent, praiseworthy, the embodiment of perfect wisdom, perfect justice, perfect mercy, perfect sacrifice, the desire of the nations, pure glory, pure power, 
unveiled. And this is where it's all heading. Now, at the end of the book of Revelation, after all the tribulation, after the final battle against evil, we see a scene where the angels and the elders and all of creation, they proclaim the victory of God. This is in Revelation chapter 19. And then it says this, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So this is a day that we're looking forward to. This is where everything is headed. Now, it's hard for us to fathom what it will be like from our own limited mortal kind of standpoint. We can't truly grasp concepts like eternity, right? We can't truly grasp concepts like perfect beauty, unveiled glory. Like it would obliterate us if, if, if we were face to face it right now. At least so these are things that we can't truly grasp on this side of the cross. I mean, on this side of eternity, but everything good that we've tasted in this life is only a prelude to the indescribable riches we'll taste when we're finally with him. And everything bad that we've both embodied and also experienced, the brokenness, the pain, the disappointment, the agony, the loss, the separation, the exploitation, the wars, the selfishness, the loneliness, all of that, the hopelessness, it will be a distant memory on that day. It will all melt away in the presence of perfection. Now, as I was thinking about this, I realized that part of the reason why I don't really long for his return is because I have it pretty good. Like, I am not in any immediate danger. I have my needs mostly met. And so part of me is like, you know, like Jesus can take his sweet time in coming back. But if any of us here were catching up with the news from even just this past week like the like unthinkable things that are happening in our world right now whether it be in new zealand and even here there's like scandals breaking out here as well when you see the you just get a glimpse of the darkness and the evil and the brokenness of mankind without god you see how someone can exploit another person somebody can murder another person of different belief like you see these things once in a while you don't really dwell on it because it so, feels so distant from my own experience, my own life, my own, you know, living here in Korea. But when we get glimpses of that, we need to remember that this is a broken world. And until Jesus comes back, it's not going to be made right. There's a lot that we can do in this, in this lifetime and a lot that we've been called to do in bringing God's light and God's kingdom wherever it is that we are. But things won't be right. The pain will truly never end until Jesus comes back. So if we were in the shoes of somebody who's being exploited, somebody who's being trafficked, somebody whose family just got murdered this past week, there'd be something in us that's like, there's something wrong with this world. And somebody needs to come and make it right. There needs to be an end to this pain. There needs to be an end to hatred. There needs to be an end to racism and exploitation, human, human trafficking. There needs to be an end to all of this. And perhaps the reason why I'm so disconnected with a desire to see Jesus coming back is because I'm so disconnected with the brokenness of this world. Because my experience 
I know it's not the majority experience in the world. My experience is pretty comfortable. Like, there's problems, yes. There's hardships, yes. But nothing that would make me cry out for the return of Christ. But there are people in this world, people groups in this world, nations in this world, who are being torn apart right now. And who know that, man, something needs to change. The injustices, they need to be made right. All the wrongs, all the evil, it needs to end. And perhaps, perhaps that is something that the world is going to face more and more. It's going to become more and more in our face as the day approaches, where we won't have the luxury anymore to believe that this is a great world, you know? Like, things are great. Things are going to continue to get just better. If we believe what the Bible says, the Bible says that the world will get darker, although his church will get brighter and brighter. And that is part of the reason why we cry out for Jesus' return as well. Ultimately, it's not about the end of pain. Ultimately, it's about the coming of Jesus himself. Seeing goodness personified. Seeing complete justice and complete mercy mingling in one man. There's going to be a day when we actually get to see him. Not from afar. We don't get to just sing songs about him and pray out to him, but he's, we're going to be with him. And it's that day that we long for, not just for what he can do, not just for the surrounding things that are going to happen when he does come, but we're going to get God. We're going to get to be with him. We're going to be reunited with a God that we worship only from afar. We only see dimly. Now, an author by the name of C.H. Lewis, he wrote a fictional series called The Chronicles of Narnia, about children that are transported to this magical you know, world. It's called Narnia, obviously, where they face battles. And, they, and in the midst of all this, they meet this lion called Aslan, who represents a, a, you know, a personification of God. And as the children journey with Aslan, something that they are torn with sadness over is that there's always times when they have to say goodbye. They have an adventure, they spend time together, and then it's time to say goodbye. And they d just don't know when they're going to see him again. So C.S. Lewis, he wasn't just a brilliant theologian, but he also knew that certain truths about God that couldn't just be captured in theology uh, through nonfiction. But he kind of captures a little bit of the essence and the longing and the ache behind the cry for Jesus' return in his very last book in the series. So this is going to be a bit of a spoiler. If you guys haven't read it by now, you're just not going to read it, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, just give up. It's okay. So this is the last book of the series. After all the battles, after all the victories, after all the struggle and uncertainty, it ends in this way. So there's a final battle and a final victory. And then it says this. Aslan turned to them and said, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. And Lucy, Lucy is one of the kids. She says, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. And you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? And their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is a morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, 
But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover in the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is how our story ends, too. There's going to be a day when we realize that everything that seems so permanent and seemed like eternity was only but, you know, but a blip. It was nothing but short and temporary afflictions. And we're going to be with the Lord one day. And it, on the other side of eternity, and everything that was good, we'll realize that we had never tasted goodness before. We're going to realize that like, we had no idea what we were talking about. Like, even in your most ecstatic, most joy-filled, more pleasure, most pleasure-filled moment here in the 80 years and the 100 years that you get to live here on this earth, it's going to be nothing compared to the kind of pleasure, the kind of glory, the kind of love that we're going to experience in the eternity to come. And everything that was so painful, all the loss, all the brokenness, all the agony, all the failure, all of that will be nothing but a memory. So the Bible ends with this, the spirit and the bride say, come. There will be a day when perfect wisdom and the will of the Holy, the will of the Holy Spirit will be in unison with the cry of the church. Can you imagine with me just for a second? When you live your daily life, you know, like say within a week, Within that span of a week, how many times do you feel like you are in unison with the Holy Spirit? Like his will is my will. His thought is my thought. Like there may be, hopefully, lips here and there, right? Can you imagine of a day when the heart and the mind and the thoughts and the desires and the passion of the church is going to be in unison with that of the Holy Spirit? His perfect will, his perfect wisdom. It's going to be one. And we're going to cry out in unison along with the Holy Spirit. His bride, his global bride is going to cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. And it's a unique dynamic that we see in the book of Revelation. And as we see the church being displayed in different ways, we see all throughout the Bible, the church is a body, the church is a family, the church is a temple, the church is an army, the church is all these different things. And that is completely true of the church. But the identity that we see the church walking in at the end of time is that of a bride. There's something very different about the identity of a bride. When you think of the relationship, the oneness of a bride with her bridegroom, it's very different from that of a slave and a master, even from a friend and a friend. Very different from an army general and his army. Very different from the head and the body. It's There's... There's a very different dynamic. There's a oneness. There's an affection. There's a longing. There's companionship, partnership. There's something very different about how we see the church in the end time. And the Bible says she will be a bride. Whatever happens from here on out until Jesus returns is going to make his bride, his church, more and more like a bride. A bride that cries out for his return. 
Now, when you think of a bride, often in our culture, what we think about is somebody who's very occupied preparing for a wedding, right? Like place mats and, I don't know, invitations and like what's the playlist for the dance party after? You know, like you think about all these different things. But the one thing that characterizes a bride is a longing to be united with her bridegroom. The wedding is temporary. Like that day is going to come and go. But the bride is looking forward to, we're going to start our lives together. We're going to start a new life together as one, as a family. And that is what she's looking over. This is the ultimate end time identity that his church will enter into as his return comes closer. A people who are filled with longing and affection for him. Above all, she can't wait, not just for this wedding, but for a new beginning and a new life built together.